0: Well, this morning we are in Mark chapter 14. Uh, Craig will be speaking to us um, from verses 32 to 42. Wherever you are this morning, I invite you now to please stand in reverence of the authority that God's word has over our lives. This is Mark chapter 14, verses 32 to 42. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that, if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. This is God's word. You may be seated.
1: Good morning, everybody. Thank you for sticking with us through all the technical difficulties. I apologize for that. Honestly, the guys who are helping us out uh, week in and week out, um, the men and the women who sacrifice their time and their, their energy, their resources, they are such a blessing. And so we we do have some some new digs up here. Um, we were talking beforehand, maybe this can turn into like a green screen, blue screen, they can reject me being anywhere I want to be in the world. <laughs> I don't think we're going to do that. Maybe we can figure out a way to make this more aesthetically pleasing at some point. Um, but I am thankful, though, that we get a little bit more flexibility up here. And, uh, of course, my great desire, like Pat, he mentioned earlier, we want to be with you guys in person. I know you guys do, too. So I'm really thankful for those outdoor gatherings. We will be outdoors next week. And it is the bab- a Baptism Sunday. We're um, going to have several people baptized. We're still tabulating exactly how many people are going to get baptized. If you want to get baptized... Please mark that on your connect card. You're going to find that in your liturgy, liturgy guide. Pat told you how to get there at the beginning. I'll just repeat it again. Christcommunitycu.com. And you click that first button, Sunday Services. Scroll down to where you'll see the YouTube link for our services. And then just below that says Liturgy Guide. You can click that. Um, you'll find in there the, the button for the connect card. And you can indicate your desire to be baptized. We'd love to talk to you more about that. A really significant passage this week. This is a very sober uh, serious passage. As I look out these windows up here on the third third floor, it's uh, appropriate. Overcast, gray, dark. Um, that's kind of that, that is. These are very, very dark times in the life of Jesus, and this may be the darkest of all. One thing that we talked about when we first started with Mark, and we talked on, a, we talked about it a couple times. Touch on it briefly. Is that Mark gives us a picture of who the real Jesus is, not a not a Jesus of our own creation or a, an idealized portrait of him or a sanitized portrait it's who he is who he really is and why is that important why is it important to get the real jesus because that's the jesus that changes us that's the jesus we really need him as he really is not as we would conform him to our own desires this picture of jesus in mark 14 verses 32 through 42 it's it's his most emotionally raw moment. Uh, if, you, if you look at the description of him in this passage, I, I actually had a, a counselor friend describe this as Jesus' anxiety attack. The sheer weight and sorrow, the waves of horror that seem to crash over him, they're causing him to stagger, he physically falls on the ground. This, this moment of tension, uh, anxiety, horror, it didn't come upon him suddenly. We can feel it rising, um, obviously all the way through the Gospel of Mark and then more acutely with the moment where that uh, woman anointed his head with oil and then to Judas setting the plot in motion to betray him and then to the Passover meal and the promises that he made, the covenant in his blood and then the promises in turn of the disciples, the, those emphatic promises, I will not deny you, no matter what, the tension is rising. And now here, we, Jesus comes into a garden where a cosmic battle is about to take place. God and sin are about to meet here. Like two fighters entering the ring, and the fate of man is on the line. How appropriate that this epic battle would take place here, of all places, in a garden. God, of course, met sin once before in a garden, the Garden of Eden. Man's fate was on the line then. The first Adam fell. He fell in the face of sin and Satan. And death came into the world. Here is the second garden. The second Adam comes in to fight. And again, man's fate is on the line. He intends to rescue and restore. So today is a lesson in fighting. I'm not I'm not talking about UFC. I know some of y'all out there, you love that stuff. I miss talking, miss talking to some of you guys about that. Today is a lesson in fighting. Not that kind of fighting. It's the most important fight of all. The fight against sin and temptation. You know, what is sin? Just thinking about this. What is sin? It's disobeying, disobeying God's good law. Uh, why would we ever want to stop sinning in the first place? Why is that an important thing? Isn't that like an old-fashioned idea? Maybe kind of a, kind of a tight thing to do? Well, sin separates us from God. Sin keeps us from experiencing and knowing God. And ultimately, it's sin that robs us of true joy and happiness. We have to fight against sin. For God's glory. For our joy. For, his, for, for the sake of his name. Today we're going to see how Jesus instructed us to fight. And how he has decisively dealt with sin changing the battle, changing that fight that we face with sin from a losing one to one that we're going to win. Let's pray and ask for his help. Father, you have said that your, your word is um, a sword able to pierce to the deepest parts of our heart and soul. And I pray that you would cut there today. Cut to me. Do a good work in me, Lord cut to the hearts of my brothers and sisters, to this precious flock. Lord, convict us of sin, open our eyes to your glory, help us to live in light of who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's let's take a couple minutes to understand the agony that Jesus is facing. I'm going to reread verses 32 through 34 real quick. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. So let's just quickly set the scene. Passover is done. That hymn that they sang at the end of the Passover meal was sung. The disciples and Jesus make their way to Gethsemane, which is a garden. And now is the moment of betrayal. So, in these final moments, Jesus desires to draw close to his Father in in prayer. That's what he tells his disciples. And he brings his three closest friends with him Peter, James, and John. Many of you know intense anxiety and fear. You know what that's like. I've had my own experiences with it. The stress that Jesus feels here is of cosmic proportions. It is the greatest anxiety, the greatest fear ever recorded. The most intense situation ever recorded. Each word that's used here to describe Jesus is unique. Each word is so heavy. It says, greatly distressed. It's almost alarmed. He's alarmed at how shocking the situation is. Troubled. His Literally, that translates to the mind being excruciatingly heavy, sorrowful to the point that he would die. Nothing in all the Bible compares to the excruciating anguish Jesus is experiencing in these moments. You you might think of Abraham, right? Abraham in the Bible. He has his son Isaac laid out on an altar. His son is bound with cords. The knife held in his hand stretched above his beloved son and that knife is about to drop. The anguish of his heart or you might think of David weeping over his son Absalom who is dead nothing compares though to this from other gospel accounts we we learn that Jesus was so filled with anxiety here with the intensity of the emotion was so deep that he was sweating drops of blood this is the real Jesus If Mark were were just out trying to paint some sort of idealized portrait of Jesus as a superhuman, this story would not be here. This This is a story of Jesus in such extreme torment that it wouldn't be invented. It couldn't be invented for someone like Jesus who is claiming to be God and man. Jesus proclaimed again and again that he would give his life as a ransom for many. That was the objective reality. He was stating what was going to happen. It's an objective truth. But before us today, this morning, in these agonizing moments is the subjective reality. This is Jesus' experience. It's, recording, it's recorded for us, Jesus' experience, which is so horrific, staggering, and overwhelming for him. Let's read verses 35 and 36. And going a little farther... He fell on the ground and prayed that if if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. So Jesus walks a little further away from his friends, and he collapses to the ground. And he begs the Father to take away the hour. To let it pass. He he begs him to take away the cup. These are not discreetly whispered prayers. Hebrews 5 gives us a little window into this. It tells us that these are loud cries of agony. What is Jesus doing here? Why would he be begging now for a way to escape God's plan to rescue sinners? Why is he trying to? kind of circumvent God's will. At least that's what it looks like on the surface. What we have here, and I really want you to take this in, is a, is a picture of the divine and human Jesus. He says explicitly, remove this cup from me. Is there another way, Father? You can do anything. Take this cup away. Maybe like Abraham and Isaac, you could hold, your, hold back your hand at the last second. It's important for us to see that Jesus is genuinely tempted because this figures into the ways that he helps us and ministers to us as our Savior who knows us and, and, and has compassion for us in our weaknesses. It's important for us to see that Jesus is genuinely tempted to give up his role, to forsake his role as the suffering servant. This this isn't some sort of kind of sort of temptation where Jesus Uh, didn't really feel like we do when we're faced with temptation. Jesus was not just putting on a show for his disciples who were kind of a stone's throw away. He is genuinely wrestling humanity and deity with the horror he now faced. In his humanity, he pled for a way of escape. And in his deity, he knew there was no other way. His greatest desire was to do the father's will he was the perfect man he is the perfect man throughout jesus's ministry he faced temptations to take pathways to comfort and ease to short circuit or take a shortcut around things and he never took it he doesn't go and he doesn't hear he prays yet not what i will but what you will And there's something really important about this. Something that you might already be thinking, and it's something that we haven't talked about yet. All this is so important. All this gives us windows into Christ. But here's another really important thing that I I want you to pay attention to. I want you to think about, and maybe you've already thought about it. Why is Jesus that upset? What would cause that much agony? What would push Jesus to the edge of reconsidering his role as the suffering servant, his role in saving his people? Something that Jesus expected in the hour caused this extreme level of horror and shock. So let me just ask you, what do you think it is? What is it? Do you think it is the cross, the Roman wooden cross, that frightened him so much? Do you think that is the crown of thorns being pressed into his head? All these things are horrific. Do you think that's what he's afraid of? Or maybe the whipping. Or maybe the nails that are pressed through, that not are pressed, but are nailed through his hands. What did he see coming that caused such overwhelming horror? Do you really think it's the cross? Think about the history of Christianity for a moment. Many, many Christians have died for what they believed and many died in horrific ways some were nailed to crosses just like their savior and some while they were nailed to those crosses sang hymns of praise to the god who rescued their soul rejoicing that they were following in the footsteps of their savior christians christians headed to the gallows and to the guillotine and, and, and as they headed there, they would sing hymns of praise to God, ready to meet their Savior face to face. I was thinking about William Tyndale, who is a, a 16th century British scholar and Bible translator. That's what he's most well known for, the Bible translation. If you've got a Bible this morning in English, if you're reading that Bible, that's in large part due to his work. Much of that translation that you use comes from him and his work. He was killed for that work. While tied to a stake to be strangled and then burned, he cried out, Lord, he's he's getting ready to die, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. His final words were a prayer, not for himself, but for the king's heart to be moved in such a way that it would allow the, the people of England to know the word of God. We could go on and on recounting stories of great encouragement and an incredible conviction to my own heart about the martyrdoms of those who love Jesus, who follow Jesus. But what I'm asking here is, do you think that those Christians who died, these torturous deaths, yet with these different attitudes, are somehow, therefore, more courageous than Jesus? Jesus was not sorrowful to the point of death because of a Roman cross or nails in his hands. So, let me ask it again. What was so heavy on Jesus' heart? Listen again to what he says. Remove this cup from me. What is the cup? Isaiah 51 tells us it is the cup of the wrath of God. Jeremiah 25, the cup of the wine of God's wrath. Revelation 16, the cup of God's fury against sin. Jesus came to the garden seeking his father, his Abba, his Abba father. He turned to him seeking some sort of relief, a stay of his will, and he is given a cup, a cup filled overflowing with the wrath of God for sin, a cup teeming with all the horrors of mankind and our own heart, my own heart, and God's righteous wrath poured out on such acts. The father hands the cup to his beloved son and tells him, drink for them. This is the horror of the garden. This is what causes such agony and pain. This is the fight that Jesus faces. Will he bring upon himself the full wrath of God for sin? Will he bring upon himself the wrath of God for my sin? For your sin? Because if he does, we're saved. Have you ever wondered how Jesus actually rescues sinners? How does his death, his death on a Roman wooden cross, how does it actually pay the price for your sin, for my sin? This is how. Mark 14 is how. This is what saves us. What saves us is when the wrath of Almighty God, righteous and holy, is not poured out on us, but on the cross, poured out on Jesus like a waterfall. In this moment, in the quiet garden outside Jerusalem, the sinless Son of God fights a battle of the will, and He submits. He submits His will to the Father's. It is settled, decided, and done. He will take your sin on Himself. He will drink the cup. And God, when He sees your sin on His Son, when He sees my sin on His beloved Son, He will crush Him. Under an avalanche of righteous justice, his wrath poured out. God crushed Jesus so that you will never be crushed. I heard a preacher once give this illustration. Imagine that you live in a home right nearby a a gigantic dam about a mile away. Your home has a window that looks out on this dam and it stretches a thousand miles long and as high as you can see into the sky. And as you're looking out your window that's peeking out onto the dam, one day you start to notice some cracks forming in the dam and you run outside and there you are in the, in the valley, the landscape stretching out before you and the cracks suddenly give way and boom, the whole dam bursts And this huge tidal wave of water is rushing towards you. Nothing is going to stop it. It doesn't matter how fast you are, you can't outrun it. It doesn't matter how fast your car drives, you can't outdrive it. It doesn't matter how how well you swim, you can't swim through this. This wave is coming for you. It is going to overwhelm you and you will be wiped off the face of the earth. And just before... You drop to to your knees. You're waiting for the, the wave to come and hit you. And just before it comes to you, the ground miraculously opens up and the water is swallowed down into the earth and not a drop touches your body. That's what Jesus did for you. He drank the cup for you. He looked into the cup and he saw your sin and the wrath of God for it And he drank it for you. This is beyond words for me. The preciousness of this gift. If you don't know the gift of salvation, I hope that you will receive it, even today. That you will turn to Jesus in prayer and thank him. Thank him for taking the cup for you. The wrath that was meant for you. And you will have peace with God. You know what also this means that Jesus drank the cup for you? You know what this means that he drank the cup down to the very bottom? The suffering of Jesus, what he experienced here in the garden, is one of the most profound encouragements to Christians throughout history. It's what causes people to go to the gallows singing hymns of praise. How is that so? They know, Christians know, that Jesus faced down the greatest horrors that no trial or tribulation that we face on this earth will ever remotely compare to the suffering that he experienced. He faced that, so we never will. It therefore fuels the courage and boldness of Christians to face down fears because the greatest fear is already swallowed up. Whatever you fear today, brother or sister, whatever you fear, whatever lies heavy on your heart, You do not need to fear. Jesus loves you. He died for you. He rose for you. He understands you. He understands. He has experienced the greatest agonies and suffering. He feels your struggle, and he will, he will carry you through safely. The outcome of Jesus' struggle, eventually submitting to the Father's will, is what is most important here. He will take our place in that. He did take our place. But what he's also done in doing this is he's given us a model, a path to follow when we face temptation and trial. Remember, Mark, this portion of Mark is about discipleship, what it looks like to follow Jesus. Even the way that Jesus interacts with his disciples in this section, he's trying to teach them and train them. We've talked about what Jesus did, but now how does Jesus face temptation and trial? Let's look at that, verses 37 and 38. And when he found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Can you, could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is, indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Jesus, we already talked about this, facing his greatest trial in these moments, and he ultimately submits to God's will. But what is it that fuels his perseverance and, and, and obedience? What is it What is Jesus demonstrating by his actions to his disciples? Who he told to watch. And they're not too far away, about a stone's throw away. What he shows them is that when trials and temptations come, seek God in prayer. The disciples' loyalties were about to be sifted severely, right? When Jesus was arrested. How would they be ready? Jesus tells them, watch, watch. And pray. Vigilance and prayer. Is that what they do? No, it is not. They were spiritually indifferent. Jesus wanted them to learn this lesson so badly, he actually came back two more times. Yet they slept as he agonized in prayer. Polycarp is the name of one of the early church fathers. In the second century AD, he wrote to the Philippian church warning them against the sin the sin of sloth, that is, spiritual indifference. He pointed in his letters specifically to this verse, verse 38, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. What is spiritual indifference? Obviously not something new if they were struggling with it in the 2nd century AD. Spiritual indifference is... Is going about life not recognizing that we're engaged in the same battle that Jesus is for our soul. We're indifferent to the spiritual realities around us. The picture here in this text is that the disciples are supposed to be watching Jesus' battle right there in front of their eyes, but instead of watching Jesus, they're watching the back of their eyelids. They're asleep. Brothers and sisters, The fight for your soul is happening right now. Trials will come, threatening to undo us. Temptations are going to come, luring us away from true life, true joy, true happiness. Hear Jesus' words here. Watch. Be vigilant. Stay awake. What unfolds in the garden is, in a sense, a call to war for us, brothers and sisters, as disciples of Jesus. It's a battle fought not with weapons like guns or swords, but fought on our knees in prayer. Every day, and you know this, every day life tempts us to embrace a life of spiritual indifference, indifference to sin. Indifference to injustice and racism, indifference to abortion, indifference to apathetic spirituality, indifference to our our significant relationships around us, indifference to self indulgent lifestyles, indifference to living a life of sexual purity and holiness. I think that in many ways each of us can identify with the disciples though can 't we we 're tired. The thought of fighting against temptation, I'll just fight tomorrow. And you know what? In the disciples' failures, weakness, giving into temptation here, Jesus shows them incredible grace. While he is in such agony, they can't stay awake and pray for one hour, yet he treats them so graciously. There is so much grace for you in your fight against sin precisely because Jesus never failed. We failed. Disciples failed. Jesus never failed. You don't fight sin to earn favor with God. You already have it because of Jesus. That's what we talked about earlier. You don't have to fear failure because Jesus never did fail. He did it for you. And at the same time that that's true, so much grace, so much love, from your Savior who knows your weakness. There's also something else equally true. You must fight. You have to fight. You have to fight sin. Romans eight thirteen. If you by the Spirit put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. If you don't get busy killing sin, sin is gonna kill you. Killing stuff is hard work. Where we lived in China... We would witness Muslims during some of their holy days slaughtering animals. They'd take out the sheep to the street. They'd wrench their neck and slit their throat. The streets would literally run red with blood. It was a mess. It is a dirty thing, a messy thing, a stinky thing, a hard thing to do. Jesus calls us to do the hard work of fighting temptation and sin this, brothers and sisters, and I want you to hear me today, this is a call to discipline, to soberness, to seriousness in our battle against sin. Many of us lament our sins, including me. We feel like we just can't break free, and that is a very hard thing to do. So hear the word of God to you today. Do not give up. Do not give in the fight. Do not give in to spiritual indifference and apathy. Instead, fight. Fight! How do you fight? Jesus showed us through prayer. On your knees, earnest prayer, persevering prayer, prayer together, prayer alone, prayer with tears, short whispered prayers, prayer shouted in rooms, groans and cries, prayer at morning, noon and night. Pray, pray, brothers and sisters, seek God. Jesus accessed overcoming power in the presence of his father. Through prayer, and it will be the same for you. Now, as we conclude, here's the good news in all this. Because Jesus drank the cup of the wrath of God against sin, this call to war, this call to fight against sin, is a fight, not as a victim, not a losing battle. And you might have heard me say this before, not as a victim, not as a not as a loser. We don't fight as victims. Constantly taking it on the chin. No hope of change. Not as victims. But because Jesus drank the cup, we fight as victors. Christ drank the cup of the wrath of God. There is not one drop for you. He gave you his spirit and the strength and the power to overcome sin, the power to resist temptation. Listen to what John Owen says about this. Set faith at work for the killing of your sin. Jesus showed us faith at work in, the, in, in resisting temptation and sin. Prayer. Set faith at work for the killing of your sin. Jesus' blood is the great cure for sin-sick souls. Live in this. Live in that. And you will die a victor. Yes, you will, through the goodness of God, live to see your sin dead at your feet. In the end... Jesus comes and finds the disciples sleeping one last time, and he says, it's enough. The hour has come. Enough. The matter has been settled. The Son of God will go to die for the sins of the people, of his people. He will drink the wrath of God Almighty. He drank every dark drop, brothers and sisters, and in the end, he will declare, it is finished. He's done that for you. You share his victory when he swallowed up death. And now we fight, not as victims, but as victors, following in his footsteps by fighting against sin, temptation, and weakness through prayer. Let's pray. Oh Lord, make us a praying people, a fighting people. Help us to hate our sin. Help us to, by your spirit, put to death the deeds of the body that we might live. That is a promise for us, Lord. Stir us up Help us to awaken out of our spiritual indifference, Lord. Stir us by your spirit. Give us strength for the battle, Lord, and help us to fight. But Lord, oh, how we know we can fight now, not as victims, not as a losing battle, but as victors because you drank the cup for us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, we worship you. It's in your name we pray, amen.